This is Reverend Kirk Lawton, minister at Ocean Lakes Family Campground, and this is our podcast. Our prayer is that this message may enrich your life as you find God especially meaningful to you. Thank you for worshiping with us. Over toward the end of the New Testament, there's a little book written by James, the half-brother of Jesus. This book has been called the most practical document in the entire New Testament. One person said that the letter of James has less about Jesus' life than any other New Testament letter, yet no other epistle reflects more of Jesus or contains as many echoes of his words. Jesus uh, came to give us new direction. And James' purpose in writing this letter was to give his readers directives for Christian living. His desire was to challenge believers to a broader, deeper faith that was not content with just a verbal confession. There's an old adage which says that self-praise smells bad. This is because self-praise is rooted in pride. The sin which is described by some as the act of playing God with the creature trying to be the creator. Because of the seriousness of this sin of pride, many of the early Christian leaders, St. Augustine, Martin Luther, and others, said that pride is the source of all sin. James said in his little letter, God resisteth the proud but he giveth grace unto the humble. That's James 4, 6. Let's see some examples of how pride can be the source of all sin. Look at the word envy, for example. Self-love, which refuses to allow anyone to rise above your own level of achievement. Or anger, which is self-love, which strikes out with hostility at those who threaten your way of doing things. Or greed, that's really self-love, which seeks to exalt oneself in material things. Look at lust, that's self-love, really, which seeks to please itself by sensual satisfaction. And we could go on and on with other sins. As we observe underlying all of these sins, an inordinate love of oneself. Isn't it strange that although we've been talked to and preached at from infancy about the destructive pride, yet this is one sin that we'd rather die than to admit. Certainly it's easy to confess our sins in general, but uh, that ought to include the sin of pride. But let me ask you, have you ever heard a person pray a prayer like this? Lord, forgive me for my pride. Forgive me for loving myself so much. There was a farmer who once bought a very poor piece of land and by applying the very best agricultural methods, he was able to develop a splendid farm. One day he was showing his pastor over the place and telling him of the changes he had made. Brother Jones, said the preacher, you and the Lord have certainly worked wonders here. The farmer hesitated for a moment and then he said, well, I guess so, preacher but you should have seen this place when the Lord had it all by himself. <laughs> a preacher once confessed that he had prepared a sermon on the subject, the grace of humility. 
He spent a lot of time preparing that sermon, spent a lot of thought on it, prayer. And when he preached that sermon, the sermon went over real well with his people. So much so that the preacher became quite proud of that sermon on the grace of humility. Those of you who are children may have heard one of Aesop's fables. It tells about a raven, that's a bird, who was once perched on a tall tree eating a, place, a piece of cheese he had stolen. A fox came walking by. He wanted that cheese that the raven had in his mouth. And so the fox said to the raven, Oh, raven, what a beauty there is in your feathers. What grace you have in flying. And raven, if you had a beautiful voice, no bird would be greater than you. Upon hearing this, the raven proceeded to prove to the fox that he could sing. And when he opened his mouth, of course, the piece of cheese fell to the ground. The fox snatched it and ran away. So goes the Aesop's fable. Pride, like a magnet, constantly points to one object, self. But unlike the magnet, it has no attractive pole. But at all points, it repels. Some people are proud of their lace, others of their place, some of their face, others of their race. Some are proud of their grace. And even some, yes, are proud of their humility. In the Ten Commandments, the first one says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the second one says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images. Here God is hitting at the very root of the sin of pride. Within every person, there's something which says that we cannot endure any kind of restrictions above us. We want what we want when we want it. Now, we may never shake our fist and say there is no God, but we can do the next best or next worst thing and just go on living as if God did not exist, living the way we pretty well please. Thank you. This is the heart of sin, the root of sin, the source of sin. It's been called original sin, self-love, which must find expression in pleasing oneself above all else. If you could imagine the word sin written on the board, look at it. It's S-I-N. What is the middle letter? I. Same as with the word pride, P-R-I-D-E. The word right in the middle of pride is, the letter, letter is I. James has something to say to every person when he warns that God opposes the proud. That word opposes seems to be a bland word when compared to the original word. What it really means is that God sets himself against the proud. This word proud is a combination of two words, meaning appearing above others, appearing to be superior to others, or, or as we might say, stuck up. Putting all this together, it means that when we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, God is on the other side in a battle against us. It's really a military term. God is warring against us. <clears throat> now let's look at some of the strange twists and turns that this self-love takes. 
It seldom comes right out as in, uh, identifiable pride. More often it's camouflaged. Sometimes pride is seen as false humility. Since no person wants to come right out and give the impression of pride inside, we all go to all kinds of extremes to cover it up. For example, how many times have you sat down to a perfectly delicious meal, one in which your estimation was just what you thought a good meal should be? It was perfect. And then you compliment the cook. And when you do that, then she or he throws off your compliment by finding fault with something that went wrong in the meal. Have you ever complimented a child following a piano recital or some kind of musical recital in which you felt that the child made a credible showing of skill and practice? And you compliment that child. And then you hear the child offer excuses for uh, that middle part, which she got, he got all mixed up. Have you ever been rebuffed when bestowing a sincere compliment on a Sunday school teacher, a preacher, a musician, a ball player, or simply a friend who has done you a favor and you're rebuffed by having them divert your attention to someone, something else, trying to cover up any degree of excellence that they may have been able to achieve. Why all this? Why are we afraid to receive compliments? We simply want to avoid giving the appearance of pride when all the while down inside our very being, we crave this attention, this acceptance, this approval. False humility could turn the grace of gratitude, uh, could, could, could turn into the grace of gratitude if only we could learn how to say graciously two simple words, thank you. A performance of a job well done an orderly, a clean home, a well-cooked meal, a good play by an athlete, a musical selection beautifully rendered. None of these things in themselves are sinful, but so often we see exhibited a false humility which in itself seeks to please us. Sometimes self-love takes another twist. That's using God for your own glory. When one is seeking to build up oneself, then God can become a tool rather than uh, a means of what it ought to be. We, it can come to be a means of gathering self-esteem. A person can go to church, give money to support the church and missions. A person can say prayers regularly, do this or that good for the purpose of getting God on my side so that people say how spiritual we are. And we can be like little Jack Horner. We sit in a corner and say, what a good boy am I? Even among sincere religious Christian people who want to help others and do a lot of good, this prideful self-picture would insist that good must be done through me. I must be the center of attention. In the Bible, Simon Peter faced this situation in his life. He recognized Jesus to be the Messiah but he tried to instruct Jesus as to what Messiah was to be and to do. I'm going to read a verse or two from Matthew chapter 16. I'll begin with uh, verse 21. From that time forth, 
began Jesus to show unto his disciples how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But Jesus turned and said unto him, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense to me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Oh, it's wonderful to want Jesus as our Savior, but if we're not careful, we will act as though we have absolute authority over our lives, and we know better than God how they ought to be controlled. Proper humility must show complete submission to God. Peter lacked that in that verse I read. Else we'll be guilty of trying to use God for our own glory. James says that God sets himself in full battle against every form of human pride. His stubborn love will not let us be satisfied with anything except his divine will for our lives. The Bible has some striking stories of how God can reduce proud people to humble believers. For example, in the fourth chapter of Daniel in the Old Testament, we have a story of how God dealt with a man named Nebuchadnezzar. This Babylonian emperor crowed from the balcony of his palace, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty, that's Daniel 4.30. Those words had no sooner come from Nebuchadnezzar's lips until God sent him out to pasture, literally. A few verses later in Daniel 4, same chapter, God said to him, You will be forced out of the palace to live with the animals in the fields and to eat grass like the cows for seven years until you finally realize that God parcels out the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he chooses. Literally, Nebuchadnezzar moved from the palace to the pasture. God knows how to humble the highest person. He's the same God today as he was back in Nebuchadnezzar's day. That God who moved an emperor from the throne of the world's seventh wonder to the back 40, can deal with our pride just as decisively today if he so chooses. Well, what's the answer? How do we successfully deal with this sin of pride? The opposite of pride is humility. Now, we do not achieve humility by thinking about ourselves and saying, okay, I'm going to be humble if it kills me. <laughs> no. The more we consciously try to be humble, the less we probably will be. The answer lies in the shifting of our attention away from ourselves to another, to one who is far greater than we are, and that's the Lord himself. We achieve humility only through having a real cause to be humble. The small tree in a grove of small trees might think itself to be a mighty tree, until it sees itself in relation to the giant redwood trees in California. A small chihuahua might think it is the fiercest dog on the face of God's good earth 
All it needs to teach, a le teach it a lesson in humility is to have an encounter with a great Dane or a St. Bernard. As we compare ourselves with each other, we might well fall to the sin of vain glory. But when we see our true selves in the light of God's purity shown through His Son Jesus, then and only then can we deal effectively with our pride, our self-love. In the book of Proverbs, Solomon tells us that there are seven things which God hates. The very first of these is a proud look. Proverbs 6, verse 17. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, we read, Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's rather interesting to me to note that on great state occasions, when leaders of different countries of the world come together, the ambassadors and rulers of small nations are conspicuously resplendent in their gold braid, their glittering apparel, but their finery of dress. But the representatives of the great nations are distinguished by their modest attire. Inordinate self-love, pride, is sin. And the Bible tells us that God goes to war against the proud. In verse 10, James tells us once more, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. In order to do this, we have to admit that we have nothing on which to rely when we come into the presence of God. Our very best is worthless before him. We are completely dependent upon God's mercy. The result of this humility on our part is that God will lift us up. This means that He's promised to accept us when we know we don't have a thing to offer Him except our sin-stained lives. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to save us from ourselves and from our own inner rottenness. No person will ever get to heaven proudly. No one can walk up to God with pride in his heart and be received. If you really want to get rid of sinful pride, if you really want to have true humility in your life, I can tell you the best example to follow. Or better yet, let the apostle tell us about this person. Philippians 2, I'm reading. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Yes, if we're willing to follow Jesus as our example, surrendering our lives to Him, acknowledging our sin, accepting His forgiveness, then He promises to give us new life in Him. You see, Jesus has already won the victory for us on the cross, and He wants you and me to have a part in that victory through Him. Will you let Him do that? Oh God, we, we want to have that victory. Sin of pride so often gets in our way. Help us, Lord, to be more like Jesus. And therefore, as we do, to find the joy that he brings to our lives. This we pray in his name. Amen.